Hey, welcome to the Hell Has an Exit podcast. I'm your host, Brian Alzate. This show is not affiliated with any specific 12-step program. If you or a loved one is struggling with an addiction, please find a local 12-step meeting. If you believe you may need detox or drug treatment of any kind, please call 833-999-1877 to speak to a specialist. The show is sponsored by United Recovery Project, a state-of-the-art drug and alcohol rehab facility. You can visit our website at unitedrecoveryproject.com. Hey guys, welcome to episode two of the Speaker Tape series. I'm your host, Brian Alzate. For eight weeks, we're going to be doing a Speaker Tape series, highlighting some of the best Speaker Tapes that I've ever heard. Uh, These are personal tapes of people that have influenced me in staying clean. I get so much out of these, and I got a lot out of them when I first got clean. Uh, This guy, Tommy O, is incredible. I hope you guys enjoy it. My name is Tommy, and I'm mad. Uh, I want to thank the committee for uh, inviting me down here, and I just wanted to say uh, there's an amazing amount of work that goes into these uh, conventions behind the scenes that a lot of us just take for granted. But the uh, next, I said, the next Sofritin, they're already planning it. You know, that's how much work goes into it. So I give a round of applause to everybody. And fuck the comedy show, I'm going. On May 24th, uh, 1982, I was closing out a perfectly good weekend that was lasting about five days. We were uh, gambling in a uh, in a bar pool table. Dollar fifty drinks were on the line, so this was some serious stuff. We got in an argument and some fisticuffs were exchanged. Uh, the two guys were thrown out of the bar and about a half hour later when I left, one of them stabbed me in the stomach with a Heineken bottle and I shot and killed him. His partner shot me and an innocent bystander. Then I shot him and he fell in the street and the car ran him over. On April 23rd of 2013, they finally let me out of prison. For those of you who are mathematically challenged like myself, that was 31 years of incarceration. I was 21 years old the night I walked out of that bar and I was 53 years old when I left the maximum security facility at Elmira, New York. I was raised, you know, uh, it's it's funny, there's a hell of a lot of New Yorkers down here. But uh, I was raised in an Irish Catholic neighborhood. I'm also a recovering Catholic. That's a whole separation. We need another hour for that one. But uh, we were all poor. We, you know, we didn't know it. We played in the street. You know, I, a lot of you uh, young guy, kids won't remember. This is like before video games. There actually was a time when there was no video games, no cell phones. And we could find like six games to play with a can, you know, kick the can and boot the can, stick ball, but we'd steal somebody's broom and we had a ball and that was it. If you had a baby carriage, we stole the wheels off it, made go-karts. Very innovative, you know. But uh, when I was about eight years old, my father asked me to go to the store and uh, get the newspapers. He was an alcoholic, but a benevolent one. He never hurt anybody. He was just a happy-go-lucky Irish drunk. You know, we get a, you know, a paycheck came. My mother sent the four of us out to look for him in the local bars, and we never got him to come home. But we'd be lucky enough, and he'd let us stay with him. And you know, eating those uh, pistachio nuts turn your face red. You know, all them red pistachio. I don't know why they died of red, but you know, for a nickel, you got a whole handful of them. But. Uh, on the way to the uh, store, a man asked me to go in the basement and help him move a box. He was going to give me a dollar. Now I'm going to sound like my grandfather, but a dollar was big. I could go to Coney Island, ride the cycle, and get a hot dog and still have some change, right? <laughs> so uh, 
of course I was going. Uh, unfortunately, this was a, a very bad man and they found my body the next day under a pile of construction debris. He had broken both of my legs at the ankles. He hung me from behind until both of my shoulders were ripped from the sockets and he crushed the whole right side of my head with a rebar and my eye was actually detached from the socket and was hanging on my cheek. As I got older and I realized the medical treatment I received, there was a sexual component to the attack, but thankfully I don't remember any of that. You know, this is in the pre-Dr. Phil days. <laughs> we didn't do counseling, didn't do anything like that. It was like, forget about it, get over it, it didn't happen, you know? I looked different. I had to wear casts and I had to stay in the house, you know, and I had an eye patch for like two years. So other kids can be a little cruel. They said, what are you, a pirate? You know, are you different? And I always thought everyone was looking at me, everyone was staring at me. That I went from a happy-go-lucky kid to a terrified uh, little boy. Everywhere I went, I thought about if someone comes from here, I run there and, you know, and I, I dug a... We used to dig forts on the side of the freight tracks, and you know, I always dug like three escape tunnels, and you know, it's just the way my mind worked at the time. You know, I was just uh, living in abject terror. You know, uh, it was extremely difficult, looking different and everything. During that time, my parents got divorced. You know, and of course, egocentric kids, we think everything is about us. And I said, you know, because I let this guy catch me, my parents got divorced, and now my brothers and sisters hate me. And you know, while I was home alone, my mother attempted suicide, and I remember pushing on the bathroom door, and my cast was sliding on the wooden floor. I couldn't get. It but I got the door open enough to see a pool of blood spreading on the white tiles from where she had slashed her wrist. You know, thankfully she survived, but uh, it, was, it was really tough, you know. She was a, a very tough woman, God rest her soul. She was like a, a waitress in, in a place like this, a big catering hall where she carried heavy trays of food and, and came. She remarried and we moved to uh, Queens Village. <laughs> This was like going to the country. Where, where we lived in Woodside, there was like one patch of green grass on the side of the Brooklyn Queens Expressway, and it was tilted like this. So we played baseball there, and every ball went to left field. If you were like a right fielder, you didn't get no run, you know? My father, being the good Irish joke that he is, he says, oh, that game is not on the level. <laughs> so, that was our, our, our grass, right? So I moved to Queens Village and they had like Cunningham Park, Alley Pump. I swear to God, I thought there were bears and deer and all kinds of shit. We were like hunting. Uh, it was just a completely different world. Um, so I was walking down Jamaica Avenue one time and I heard pop, pop, pop. I said, that's the answer. Guns. I don't ever have to be afraid again, you know? So I walked downstairs and I gave myself a job. I just walked in. So who is this kid? I said, I work here now. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Had a boom. You know, we lived near the Gallo Wine Factory. You know, they used to put like three freight cars on the side at night and they would unload them the next day. Being good, dedicated citizens, we would help them unload a little bit the night before. <laughs> Remember them half-gallon jugs with the finger hole? We used to drink it like the Beverly Hillbillies, the green bottles over the shoulder. To this day, if I see one of them fucking bottles, I want to puke. You know, that was my first drug. Uh, you know, I mention it because our, our, our literature does. You know, and I talked someone into buying me a pint of Bally High wine. That was the first thing I ever got high on. I said, nothing but the best screw top money can buy. I start out with the best, right? But from that point in time, I found a way to like chemically alter myself. It was the first time the fear went away. You know, a lot of us for different reasons. I've been around long enough to hear the stories of my fellow addicts and find out that, you know, other grown men actually suffer from fear. And that was something that wasn't talked about where I came from. Men didn't do fear, only cowards did fear. And the only time I ever heard a grown man actually stand up and say he was motivated by fear was after I came into the rooms of Narcotics Anonymous. You know, so, Part of my payment for this job that I gave myself was they let me shoot as many rounds as I wanted, as I could reload every week. 
So I shoot three or four hundred rounds a week, and I became extremely proficient. In 1980, I was at an international pistol sh shooting competition in Cheyenne, Wyoming, and I was number two in the entire country for my age group. Not a very useful skill on the streets in New York, I will admit. But such is life. So, um, for those of you around my age, you know that uh, our brothers from the South, the Colombians, they brought us a little gift in the late 70s, early 80s, and it started to like flood the market. So, uh, I was at the ground zero in New York, Jackson Heights, Woodside, was uh, ground zero for the uh, epidemic. You know, listen, you gotta remember, I got arrested BC. That's before crack. <laughs> got arrested way back there, right? So, if you don't, it, stuff was pretty expensive back then, and ran up quite, quite some bills, you know? So, at first, I would just fix their guns, you know, make them quiet. We won't get into that, the statute of limitations is not up. <laughs> But uh, my disease had taken me to the point where I had absolutely no regard for my own life. I, w I was literally, in retrospect, trying to kill myself. I mean, I put myself in situations that no human being could reasonably expect to get out of alive, and I did that regularly. I had uh, zero regard for my own life. I was such, my, my self-esteem was so low, and I was just down so far that I couldn't even see up, you know? So I eventually became the solution to the problems and uh, I was convicted of the contract murder of a DEA informant and I was sentenced to life in prison. The judge told me, may the walls of the prison crumble before you ever walk the streets of this city again, you smiling, smirking henchman. And I forget, he was Irish prick too. <laughs> so, you know, off to prison I go. And for those of you who don't know, prison sucks. <laughs> so this is an insidious disease from which I suffer. So now I'm in prison and my release date is like a toe tag on my foot, right? But the disease is telling me, hey listen, things were great when you were just drinking. It was them fucking drugs that fuck shit up. When you get out, if you just drink, right? I got no release date and this disease got me drinking again, right? <laughs> We were drinking shit that was cooked in the toilet bowl, like three days, no wine before it's time, right? And you know you're a fucked up addict when you're willing to snort some shit that came out of a guy's ass like five minutes ago. And grateful to have it too, right? I see some tattoos out here. I know you motherfuckers were there. You know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about. So, uh... Prison really sucks, so I escaped. In 1987, I repelled 13 stories down the side of a building on a fire hose. The whole front page of the Daily News said, rope trick. <laughs> Once again, I made my parents very proud. So I got this delusion. I said, if I go out and I change my name and I get a job, and I don't do any drug, everything will be all right. They'll leave me alone. Well, I'll tell you, they're pretty serious about these prison sentences. They actually expect you to finish them when you start them. They don't really like that, like, you went out for recreation and shit like that. They frown upon it, right? But I'm sticking to the plan. So I moved to Philadelphia. I changed my name. I moved to Philadelphia, I changed my name, and, and I got married, okay? The girl I married was from Belfast, Northern Ireland, Total Square, never even saw marijuana, right? So I'm sticking to the plan. I, I, somebody asked me to tell this story, they heard it, so... <laughs> Go ahead, you come up and do it. Anyway. So, it's funny as hell, we're on a date, a regular old date, me and another couple and my wife, and we're drunk as fuck, and we go to Philadelphia Zoo, right? So, I get in a staring contest with this bald eagle. They're like, come on, come on. I said, no, me and the eagle are bonding. I'm staring at the eagle, I said, yeah, I know. It sucks, you're in the cage. 
So that night, me and the other idiot decided to go back to the Philadelphia Zoo to free the eagle. We get a pair of bolt cutters. I'm crawling through fucking tiger cages, looking for the fucking eagle. So fucked up, I can't find him, right? But I'm a dedicated addict, and I ain't giving up on this fucking plan. I gotta free the eagle now, right? We get these ideas. So I said, what I need is a local guide. I said, someone from Philadelphia will guide us to the Eagle and we'll complete the mission, right? <laughs> so the next weekend, I'm in a bar, and you can pretty much assume you're on the wrong track when another fucking drunk tells you, what are you, crazy? <laughs> so I tell the guy, I said, listen, you gotta come with us. We're going to the zoo. <laughs> he said, the fucking zoo is closed. I said, I know, but we gotta free the Eagle. We're gonna get the boat cutters. He said, what are you, fucking nuts? I said, no, I'm serious as cancer. Right? So he says, every school kid in Philadelphia knows that eagle only has one fucking wing. He can't fly. <laughs> so quite possibly the drug alcohol is a problem in and of itself. It's got me crawling through tiger cages to free an eagle that can't fly. So the federal authorities thought I had quite enough fun and they kicked every window and door in in the house and boom, boom, flipped me over looking for tattoos. Bing, 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 that's him, you got him. So they hooked me up and the new wife is there and she's got like a t-shirt on. She's, you know, what's his bail? Where are you taking him? What's going on? They said, bail? Lady, this guy's a convicted contract killer. He escaped from prison and he's serving a life sentence, she said. I said, come on, cover her up. You know, I asked her sticking out. I said, cover poor girl up. I said, Give me, can I speak to her before you take me away? They said, sure, so go ahead. I said, listen. I said, honey, I, I haven't been entirely truthful with you. <laughs> she said, but Bobby. I said, my name's Tommy, glad to meet you. That crazy bro stayed married to me for 19 years, but I need a whole nother hour for that one. So anyway, they promptly returned me to prison, tightened the screws up a little bit more, like now you got max, max, whatever the hell that is. So I never did, I never did one day in a medium. Every day was maximum security till the day I got out. I was in every maximum security prison in the state of New York because they figured, like, let's move him every year or so because he might have a plan. So we'll fuck up his tongue. He's halfway there, move him. So I saw New York State on the economy plan. People left. You see, I'm from New York. I said, yeah. I said, where are you from? They said, Auburn. I said, oh, I lived there for three years. So where'd you live? I said, that big house up on the hill. Good security. And they look and they go, oh, okay. So, I used everything and anything I could get my hands on when I was in prison. And you know, the thing you learn real quick, right? So my drug of choice, I fucking zoom, zoom, zoom. There's no way to zoom, zoom to. So you get all zoomed up and you fucking still got the bars in front of you, right? So I decided to turn it in the other direction, right? So now I figure, this is my theory, this is my, my the, I said for every hour I was nodding. I said, the governor didn't get that fucking time. <laughs> I wasn't here for that. <laughs> so, we used, I mean, we found new and innovative ways to get high every fucking day, some way, somehow. And uh, it, it, it really is to the point of retard. I, I, I don't want to say that word. So, the whole time, I'm getting what they call conjugal visits, family reunion visits, right? Every other month you get to spend like two or three days out in the trailer program with the wife. You go out and there's normal food, cooking, you know, and everything that comes along with being married. So, boom, boom. I really enjoyed that. You know? It was like the only thing I really had to look forward to. So, eventually I tested positive after, I knew every fucking trick in the book to beat urine tests. I mean, I made devices that squeeze between your cheeks and you squeeze them and, and it looks like it's coming out of your thing. I, I, I'll tell you about it later. But I made devices that are now patent pending, you know what I mean? Fake, fake, fake urinalysis machines. 
So they caught me one time, like six o'clock in the morning. She said, stand up, don't touch anything, move over here. And they got me, right? So I tested positive. And what they do, I was in this place called Sean Gunk, and it's like the max, max prison. It's like a prison within the prison. So to avoid any problems, when you're going to solitary confinement, they come and get you during the count when everybody else is locked in so it won't create a problem. So I knew they were coming. So everybody, Tommy, they come with a camera and everything like that. Now I got my gate tied shut in like 15 different places because I got like eight bags left and I ain't giving that shit up. <laughs> so they got me on camera and they're like, put that down, fuck you. And I'm fucking, right on, right on camera. I said, what are you doing? What's it look like I'm fucking doing? I'm finishing this shit. I'm already busted. What the fuck, I'm gonna go solitary, solitary? I'm gonna be alone in a lone cell. So, all fun and games over, I OD, right? So now, I get to, I get, I, I remember in and out of it, I, I, I get to the clinic and I'm, uh, and the nurse is actually crying. She said, look, he needs to be intubated, but I don't know how. And one of the guards said, well, I'm, I'm a certified EMT, but I'm not fucking doing it. And I realized that I had put myself in a position where these people weren't even willing to save my life. They knew how and wouldn't bother. You know, so that was the last day I used. When I woke up the next day and they took me to solitary confinement, the desire to use was gone. It was complete. I, I don't know how. You know, I didn't say the prayer. I went to this, uh, we talk about these epiphanies, these higher power moments. I went to this Residence Encounter Christ weekend, right? Thursday. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, these men come in, really good guys, and we sit at big tables like this in the gymnasium, and their families cook home-cooked meals on the outside. Pork chops, fried chicken, all kinds of crazy shit. If you didn't know, prison food sucks. So I really went to encounter some fried chicken. I didn't go to encounter Jesus Christ. But if I had to listen to some Jesus Christ to get the pork chops, okay. It's a fair trade-off, right? But, um, you know, one of the ways, in prison we have a hierarchy, you know, like with child molesters way at the bottom and then, you know, on the way up. So we create these, uh, you know, delusional positions of grandeur, so to speak, right? You know, and uh, so... One of the ways that I made acceptable what I had done was to like stay cool shit, like no innocent civilians were harmed in the filming of this movie, you know. No taxpayers were ever injured. We were all gangsters. We knew the rules. I was shot three times myself in various things. And you know, before it was all over, they charged me with seven homicides. And I pled guilty to a few, and they ran, you know, you get life plus 30 years. I still don't know how the fuck they do that. What, that I keep the body for 30 years or something like that? Life plus, how the fuck do you do that? Thankfully, it didn't come to that. But, uh, so this guy, we're talking, you know, prison's a funny place, you know, and we, we can understand that as addicts, we all have layers. People we, who know us in a certain way, but we don't tell them this. This one knows me another way, but I don't tell them that. You know, we got all these different uh, layers. So in prison, <coughs> you gotta multiply that by 100, because everybody's a fucking tough guy. <laughs> there ain't no punks, you know, if you're soft, you're, you're food. You know, so you're, you're, you're like sharks in the water with blood, you know, so everybody's tough. So this guy is at our table and we're talking the two days and on like Saturday he gets up to go tell his story. And he talks about raising his son and the kid was a really nice kid and started a fund for another kid with cancer when he was like seven years old and really a good kid. So the kid wins a full ride scholarship to Yale University. They didn't have much money. They scraped together enough to buy him a good used car. And he tells a story about him and his wife putting him in the car the proudest day of their life, sending him off to Yale University. Two months later, the Connecticut State Police called him to come identify his child's body. He had been killed by a drunk driver. I never saw more raw human emotion in my life. 
this man's face, aged 10 years, telling this story. And I absolutely lost it. I was sobbing like when you're a kid, I couldn't catch my breath. I was just, forget about France and tough guy shit. And he came down from the rostrum and put his arm around me and walked. Convicted murder, being consoled by a man who lost his child to a criminal act. That was the first time that I ever really, truly accepted that no matter what we thought of each other, I had killed some other's son. I had caused that type of pain. And, and, and it was absolutely crushingly unbearable. So, <clears throat> excuse me. The next day I contacted my attorneys <clears throat> and I had them withdraw all of my appeals. They said, listen, no, what are you talking? At that time I was getting close to like a half a million dollars in legal fees. They said, we have a very good chance we're gonna win the fit. I said, I did this shit. You know, with responsibility comes atonement. There's a price to be paid. I'm not gonna weasel out of here on some loophole. I accept responsibility for what I did, and now I gotta pay the price. What that price is, I turn it over. So, now I'm in the box for this uh, solitary confinement thing, and when you're in solitary confinement, you know, you'll read the toothpaste too. You really got nothing else to do. <laughs> so they bring this cart down the gallery there, and there's supposed to be a wide selection of books on it. It's like three books on it. The Bible, the big book, and I saw this other like crumpled up, pages torn, ripped up. I said, that must be a good book. Everybody fucking read it. So I said, I said give me that book. It was our basic text. No greater value can be had than to send a basic text into a correctional facility or prison. We will read the covers off that thing. God bless everybody from H and I. I bought one of those books. I wish I had more money to buy more. I wrote a thing in there about my story briefly to the person who's going to get that, that there is hope, you know, stick with this program. So I read the basic text. And I especially read the stories because this addict stuff is from the disease of terminal uniqueness. So nobody liked me, nobody went where I went, nobody did what I did, so you can't tell me shit. So I read those stories and it was like, wow, I did that. Yeah, yeah, I thought like that. Yeah, well, I didn't do that yet. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so when I got out of the box, they told me, you have to, if you want your family reunion visits back, the trailer visits, remember those? You have to do six months of an alternative program. So I said, what, what's that? They said, AA or NA. Well, being a good addict, I said, look, if I take them both, can I get it back in 90 days? <laughs> You're always looking for the angle, right? So the answer was no. Pick one. And of course, because of the book that I had read and the stories that I had seen, I picked N.A. Now, I wasn't honest, I wasn't open-minded, I wasn't willing. I went there to kind of like hang out till the heat died down, you know? So when I got to these meetings, what, what I did was, see, as, as life is with strange people, you have to be there to understand this. We have these conversations like in the yard, like, hey, listen, what would you do to get out of here? I mean, absolutely free, nothing hanging over your head, you're free. Would you cut off your hand? Well, which hand? Ladies, uh, sorry, but one hand's more important to men in prison than the other one. Just saying, look, we're all adults here. So, yes, I would cut off my hand. Would you cut off your leg? Mm, above the knee or below the knee? I saw that guy in the Olympics with that springy thing. You can do pretty fucking good with that. <laughs> so before this conversation is over, I'm all stumped the fuck up, but I'm getting out of prison, right? That's how bad we want out. 
So what could possibly induce free men to come in this place that we would cut off our limbs to get out of? It's gotta be a scam involved and I'm going to figure it out. <laughs> that was my mission, right? Hey guys, wanna to talk to you about United Recovery Project. We're a state-of-the-art drug and alcohol rehab facility. We have three locations in Florida and three locations in California. Our facilities are state-of-the-art, luxury, and high-end. We do take most insurances. If you're struggling, I always tell people to go to a 12-step meeting, but some of us need an extra head start to give us a fighting chance. For those of you that do need this head start, that are detoxing, that do think you need to speak to a professional, please call 833-999-1877. We are working with most insurances. Even if you can't get into our treatment center, we will point you in the right direction. Please give us a call today. Once again, that phone number is 833-999-1877. So my first genius idea was I said, they gotta be gay, right? (laughs) That's that's my big head ego, right? Some free gay guys coming to prison to find me, right? So, if they were, it didn't matter. This was um, what saved my life, was the honest, open sharing of my fellow addicts. Those guys systematically knocked the bricks in my wall of terminal uniqueness into the next century. I listened with an open mind, and they kicked the bricks right out of my wall. And you know, that's when I heard the guy speak about, you know, fear, and I looked around and I said, did he actually say that? Nobody, nobody judged him, you know. When you can get um, guys in prison, that, you know, for those of you who are there, very separated, whether it's, it's racial, it's by where you live, New York City, upstate, and call them hillbillies, You know, wherever the hell, it's all divided. In that meeting, those walls were gone. We would actually go and talk to another member and say, hey, listen, you all right? I didn't see you at the meeting last night. That was unheard of. You know, when we built that trust in that meeting that we could say what was ever on our minds and it would stay there, real recovery began. I had been in prison for so long that I no longer even dreamed outside the walls. I could be with the most beautiful woman in the world and it would be in a prison cell. I could be having a meal with my family and it would be in the mess hall. Four years after coming into the rooms of Narcotics Anonymous, I had my first dream outside the wall in over 20 years. This program truly sets you free. Okay? The greatest prison I was ever in was right up here in my own head. So I, I worked the steps with a sponsor through the mail the first time, right? And so like, remember I said I'm a recovering Catholic, so I really didn't. I said, they're going to get to this God shit sooner or later. They're going to sneak it up on me, right? Higher power, you can make it the doorknob. I said, I know they're going to come with this God shit through the back door some way. Got to keep my eye on them. Still ain't trusting them. So my, my sponsor said to me, he asked me these, he made me write like crazy. I don't even know where that shit is now. It's probably up for sale on eBay. But, <laughs> So he made me write this voluminous shit, so he asked me this like 10 page question about what I think my higher power is and all this detailed stuff. So I write him back, what? (laughs) And I send the letter off because I know it takes three days to get to him, a day to answer, three days to come back and I duck the God question for another week, right? (laughs) But he said to me, he said, Tommy, can you just leave the door open a crack for the possibility that there's a power greater than yourself. I said, yes, I can do that. With that crack, the light shined in, you know, and my higher power really began to move in my life when I got out of my own way enough to see it. You know, I watched these meetings in prisons. I would go to a prison new, and the NA meeting would be a domino tournament. And we turned it back into an NA meeting. We tried to save it, you know, we put as much effort into N.A. as I did into the dumb shit prior to it. Look, 
Men with no women around can come up with some really stupid fucking ideas. <laughs> I'm being honest, I'm calling it like it is, you know? I mean, this is my table, right? Me and my friends are gonna sit here, it's our table. And if you sit there, we'll kill you. <laughs> this table been here 100 years before we've been here. It's gonna be here 100 years after we're gone. But we're gonna die over this table. That's the dumb shit we come up with because we don't have anything else. Without the violence, I put that same mentality into preserving NA meetings. I began to protect the meeting like I put my life on the line to protect that table because that meeting was actually saving lives and not taking lives. I was blessed to tell one of my predecessors tonight, Dutch. Dutch was an old H&I guy back when H&I was new. And I got a, I ran into some H&I guys sometimes that they never had run into a person who got the message inside and then got out and was doing great. I want to tell everybody that's H&I or thinking about H&I that the seeds are planted you can't unknow once you know. And we know there's a place to go. We know there's a new way to live. We know there's a life beyond using. That's because you carried that message inside those walls and began the process of recovery for those individuals, including myself. I got the bladder of a gerbil, and I should have took a piss before I stuck it down. Now like, no, I'm okay. So, anyway, uh, I got a few, not weaseling, I got a few of my sentences running together, you know? So I wound up with finally done, all in, 27 years, eight months to life. Weird number, but such as, that's what it was. So I went to my first board, and there was two commissioners there, there's normally three, so one said yes, one said no. I was amazed that anybody would even say yes. So it's called a lack of consensus. You go back to your next board the next month. Next month, two commissioners again, they both say, get the fuck out of here. No, two years, right? So I do my two years. What do I do in those two years? I continue to study. I went to prison with a seventh grade education, okay? I got my GED, I studied and got a college degree, then I became a certified New York State teacher's aide and helped over 3,500 young men get their GEDs. I continued to study and became a certified HIV AIDS Hep C counselor. I was one of the first prisoners in the state of New York to be given his own office to do counseling one-on-one -on -one with my fellow prisoners. So after I got hit with the two years, I did a one-year apprenticeship and 2,000 hours of training and I became a certified peer counselor in the, in the process of our family, uh, something or other, I <laughs> I got certified in another one. It was a cert social living skills counselor. So I didn't allow that hit to define who I was, that I kept moving forward, like this program chose us. Life on life's terms. We're gonna have to deal with some adversities, but we need not use over it. There's a way to go forward. So the next time I went to the parole board and uh, I had three commissioners, one of them was the lady who voted yes in the first board. So all I gotta do is win one of the other two and I'm sliding on out of here, right? <laughs> so I put my best foot forward and I spoke and I did and all three of them voted to release me. <laughs> so, as soon as I got a release date, my sponsor said, listen, you're gonna go make 90 meetings in 90 days. I said, wait a minute, I got nine fucking years. That's for newcomers. <laughs> right away, we're gonna take our will back, right? So, I made 120 meetings in my first 90 days on a bicycle in the Catskill Mountains, okay? It did two things. 
First, I lost 20 pounds. I could start riding that bike again. And second, and more importantly, created a foundation of the fellowship upon which I stand today. Everybody I know is in the program because of those 120 meetings. They told me, go to the meeting, wait till there's a break, stand up, tell them who you are, and they give you Now, in the interest of full disclosure, because of my time frame, I had a curfew. With 120 meetings in a rural area where I live, I had to throw some of the other fellowship in there, right? So I go to the meeting and I stand up, I said, my name's Tommy, I'm an addict. I got out of prison yesterday, I served 31 years. The whole place went, <laughs> I didn't get one fucking phone number, that's no bullshit. So the next night, I went to the NA meeting and I stood up, my name's Tommy and I'm an addict. I just got out of prison. They applauded. They came over and gave me phone numbers, offered me rides and everything. I love Narcotics Anonymous. We truly understand each other and we will love you till you learn to love yourself. If you're new, please, Keep coming back. You know, there's a reason the windshield in my car is so big and my rearview mirror is so small. What's behind me is not that important. I can't change it. It's what's right in front of the bumper that we need to pay attention to. So you gotta remember, I got arrested before cell phones. They were as big as a brick, they came in a backpack and like three people had them. Right? So I come out into this new world and they hand me, there's like 12 of my family members, and they hand me an iPhone 4. And they say, listen, all the numbers are in there, just press the name and blah, 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 and you can tell Siri and Siri, or I don't know who the fuck Siri is, right? So I'm saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I say, okay. Now we're driving back across the state in my sister's car, and she says, call Dave. So he's my brother, he's in another car. I said, okay, cool, I got a phone, I'll call him. She said, no, I told the car to call Dave. I said, get the fuck out of here. There's some Star Wars shit here, right? The fucking car called him. I'm like, who the fuck is that? And he's on the phone. Smack. So I, I just live an amazing life. I, I went into Sam's Club and almost had an epileptic fucking seizure. There was like TVs the size of a van. Like this, you know? I had a little black and white TV that goes in the museum now when I was a kid. Some guy said, you're gonna bring it home for what? Nobody's got that. But I just, uh, okay, so, whole separate story. First wife did not survive me getting clean. Okay, for whatever reason, we'll not get into that, but that's just a message to uh, other people who are new to recovery that, you know, we just learned to deal with things. We don't know who we are. I didn't know who I was clean. I hadn't been clean since I couldn't remember when. I used for 22 years in prison. I lied, I cheated, and everything that goes along with it. So when I got clean, it was the first time that, you know, I'm using, so I don't care what you're doing because I don't want you looking at me, you know? So when I got clean and I got some perspective and I started looking and I asked myself an honest question, when you get out, could you cohabitate with this woman? And the answer was honestly no. So I sat her down, I said, listen, you know, come. And I said, listen, I love you, you're a good woman, but you're not my woman. You know, this is the way I feel, and I don't want you to stay, and then I leave. I think that would be the greatest crime I ever committed, to keep this woman coming for 30 years and then say, hey, thanks a lot, see you later. So while she was still young and stuff, I tried to, you know, do the right thing. She still hates my guts to this day. But she's Irish, they hold grudges a long time. We don't forgive shit, just ask the British. So, you know, and uh, I got married again to, you know, there's a few Jewish people here, and he really called it your best shirt. It means the one for whom God intended. You know, and I thank God I have a partner in life. She's in the fellowship. She has 35 years clean. 
She got clean when she was 17, and she happens to be the chair of the World Board of Narcotics Anonymous right now. Service on a whole different level, you know. I am humbled by the things that she does, and, and totally selfless. She was at the international convention down in Orlando, and you never saw her. She didn't go on a stage one time. She didn't do any of that stuff. She's a behind-the-scenes person, like a lot of you guys that were working here. I, that's why I got such respect when I see people manning these tables and wearing these shirts and telling you where to go from the smallest to the littlest. We're all trusted servants, and we do a job, and I, I'm so grateful that you do. Really am. <laughs> So I get out, whole new world, right? I remember walking down this country road I was talking about before. I love when the trees come together over a road and create like a tunnel, nothing more beautiful. I live in upstate New York called Woodstock. I'm like a city stuck in the country. So I told my two hippie neighbors, listen, if you see me doing some shit like life-threateningly stupid, like I'm gonna cut down a tree, it's gonna fall on my house, you know, give, me, give me a little warning, because I'm doing some crazy shit, right? I got like poison ivy, poison oak, poison sumac, sputter mother Jesus in a blowhole. I caught like every fucking thing. Snakes bit me, skunk sprayed me. The whole fucking nine yards, right? It's just a learning experience. But I'm luckier than a lot of addicts much luckier than a lot of addicts because I went to a place I've never been before. I don't have to go back to people, places, and things. It's very difficult. And if you do, I suggest, strongly suggest that you get a home group, you get a sponsor, you work some steps, take a commitment, and immerse yourself in the fellowship of love and hope. This is where your life will change. I'm not strong enough to go around. When I first got clean, I went back out in the yard and I was like, gonna lead the charge to LA. Come with me, I found the better way, right? <laughs> so I go out there in the yard and I'm talking to these guys and he said, Tommy, he said, I just got a bundle of brand new guys. I said, wow, they tested my urine yesterday. I probably could get, I said, oh shit. <laughs> I found out I was a lot more likely to stay there with them than they were to come with me. And they're living in, that's why I love that painting that was reaching down into the dark hole. Because when they're using, they're living in a dark place. I'm not going in there. But if you wanted to come out in the light, my hand is extended. I'll bring you home. But you have to take the first step. That's nothing spectacular because it was done for me and it's the only reason I'm here. We can only keep what we have by giving it away. I learned that right here. You know, I only keep, so the wife and I are walking down this country lane and I get to about 200 yards and I wanted to make a left turn bad as hell. I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> and I realized that that was the distance of like the biggest prison yard I had ever been in. I hadn't walked in a straight line more than 200 yards in over 30 years. It was like a magical breakthrough moment. You know, I just kept walking. So. I did everything I said. I got the home group, I got everything. So now, I'm gonna get into some recovery here. Now I have all these certifications as a counselor. So I go up to Albany to work with this father, Petey Young. He has over 5,000 beds across New York State. Helps people coming out of recovery, coming out of prison, he does a lot of work. So I go there and uh, interview for a counselor spot. So he said, listen, Tommy, you're, you're more certified than half the people we got, but we can't hire you because you're on active parole. And these guys are on active parole and you, you, you can't counsel them. So I said, damn. So he said, listen, but I see on your resume here that you know, you know carpentry, you know plumbing, you know all this stuff. Would you consider running my maintenance department? Now the old addict would have said, man, fuck you. That ain't the job I came for. <laughs> It wasn't the job I came for, but it damn sure was the job I needed, right? I got a 30-year gap in my resume. <laughs> Ain't a whole lot of people jumping out the window to hire a professional license plate maker, right? <laughs> so the very first day I'm on this job, I'm under a guy's sink and I'm fixing the trap on the sink. Real easy fix. He's on the phone, he's arguing with his girlfriend. Blah, 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 they're going back and forth. I got one ear on it, but I'm busy. He said, well, fuck you then, you don't believe it. So he gets on the phone, he calls his mother. 
and he's trying to get some money or something. I, I caught the tail end of it. He said, well, then if nobody's believing me to fuck it, I'm going to go out and get high. And I said, whoop. <laughs> I popped out from under the sink. I said, can I talk to you for a minute? <laughs> I kept him talking for 45 minutes till the sponsor got there and took him to a meeting. So I got to do what I went there to do without getting hired to do what I was supposed to do. And only a bunch of fucking addicts don't understand that shit. Right? So he put me, my higher power put me exactly where I needed to be at that time to help another addict. You know, I was right in their home personally with them. So during this time, my wife works for the state of New York, right? So she says, put in these applications. You never know what's going to happen, blah, blah, blah. I now work for the state of New York. My office is on the fifth floor of the New York State Capitol. <laughs> the state that incarcerated me now pays my salary. I work for the New York State Assembly. I don't know if politics is the same down here, but it's probably the only job I could get where I'm not the biggest crook in the room. <laughs> The FBI comes in to lock somebody up, they walk right past me. So he's over there. Handcuff him, take him away. It's a perfect fucking job. But, like I said, let's talk about some really fucking higher power moments, right? So we do the annual changing of the light bulbs, right? Every year we change the seven-year bulbs. <laughs> Your tax dollars at work. We buy seven-year bulbs, we change them every year. <coughs> we gotta lower all these chandeliers, we change hundreds of light bulbs. About a hundred light bulbs into this shit. I'm getting fucking pissed. I'm like, what the fuck? You get a monkey to change the fucking light bulbs. I'm, I'm coughing to, I'm gonna fucking change. You know, so the, the supervisor, Tommy, look, go in the speaker's office. That was Sheldon Silver, he's now in prison, but the speaker of New York. I, I can't stand it because he blocked the Jet Stadium, so I'm fucking happy when they took him to jail. I'm sorry, I'm not supposed to feel... Uh, sorry, sorry. Anyway, so he says, go in the office and change the batteries in his clocks. Right? It's okay, I can do that. The prick got about 30 fucking clocks in there. Everybody who ever gave him a plaque, you ever see them little clocks that go in the plaque and like this? And the batteries are like watch batteries. I can't see shit. I'm blind from like 30 years of reading in prison. Now I'm fucking getting pissed about the batteries, right? So I, I picked this, um, it was a marble plinth up off this desk. And I looked down at the desk. And I said to the guy I went, I said, hey, I made this fucking desk. He said, yeah, I'm Thomas Edison. I made the light bulbs. <laughs> I said, oh, yeah? I went around to the desk drawer and I took the drawer out. I said, what's it say on the back? It says TO98. I said, that's a 72-inch Tremont double-ped desk. They were made in a specialty shop in the Auburn Correctional Facility in the summer of 1998, and I made every fucking one of them. So sometimes my higher power gives me a nudge and sometimes I get a swift fucking kick in the ass. You ain't happy fucking changing light bulbs. You can go back to making these desks real fucking good. <laughs> Absolutely what I needed to hear. So another amazing thing, right? When I was in, um, I was in prison. When I got out of the box, I was reading the stories again. It was the new edition. So I really locked into this one story. It's a, a textbook case, if you ever read it, right? I just for some reason, because I had a spiritual hole in my chest that I was trying to fill. This is a spiritual disease, in case you didn't know. And I was filling it with everything I could, right? So I related to the story. So when I get out, my wife is throwing potential sponsors at me, you know? She said, look, this guy was here when Moses brought the tablets down from the mountain. He helped write the basic text, and I said, man, fucking dude wears brown socks with a blue suit. No fucking way you can be nice. Yeah, when did that shit stop? Well, you can wear brown shoes with a fucking black suit. All right, that's the separation. Anyway, so I would turn down these perfectly well because I'm ducking it, right? So I go to this fucking meeting in Woodstock and I hear this guy speak and I said, yeah, how many years you got? Okay. You want to sponsor me? Okay. 
We get down, we talk. And about two months later, I'm telling him my fucking story about the book. And he says, Tommy, you really don't know, right? I said, what? He said, that's my story. I said, get the fuck out of here. The guy whose story I related to wound up being my fucking sponsor. Out of all the places you could go in the world where they took all of these stories from all over the place, my fucking sponsor sits right in the meeting where I'm going and my higher power guided me to him. This is absolutely one freaking... If you don't believe in a higher power, you're not paying attention. Really not. You know, I used to think that everything good was because I'm so great and if it went wrong, it's because you're an idiot. No. There's really, you know, there's a reason why people to the left of me, people to the right of me got killed and I didn't. I was saved for a reason. What that reason is, I don't know. Maybe to come here and talk to you, you know. For the last four years of my incarceration, I got on my knees every single night. And my wife got on her knees at 10 o'clock and I prayed and I said, if you ever see fit to release me, I'll go anywhere you ask me to go to share my experience, strength, and hope with my fellow addicts in the hope that some addict doesn't have to make the mistakes I made. I believe you. When you share the meeting, I believe you. I don't need to make those mistakes because I'm listening to you. You made them for me. You know, only a fool learns from his own mistakes. The wise man can learn from the mistakes of others. And it's only through the open and honest sharing of my fellow addicts that I stay clean today because they guide me. They keep me real. The comedy show, I can make you laugh. <laughs> Hang on. Hang on, we're getting to it. Every time I get done speaking, I say, oh shit, I should have said that. I forgot to say this. I didn't say that. Everybody does that, right? So I'm trying to remember all the things I wanted to say when I was waiting here for four hours to speak. <laughs> God bless you, but you can drag some shit out down here in Florida. <laughs> Woo! I was outside smoking a cigar, and the guy said, we got to go inside. we got to hear the speaker. I said, don't worry. You ain't going to miss him. He sucks anyway. I said, no, they're gonna start. I said, I guarantee you the speaker's not gonna stop. I said, I'm the speaker, just sitting all right up in the middle of the seat. Frickna, whatever that means. So, I'm gonna, I'm gonna wrap it up, okay? Shortly after I got out, you know, ah, my, you know, both of my parents passed away when I was in prison. I didn't get an opportunity to attend their funeral. My father, God rest his soul, got into the other fellowship for the last five years of his life and died so He was suffering from liver cancer and he had my two brothers bring him all the way upstate to the Great Meadow Correctional Facility where we had to get special permission because he had an external morphine pump to make it bearable. And he came up and he sent my two brothers away and he said, listen, I want to apologize to you for my alcoholism and you know the way your life turned out. You know? This good man, I mean a good man, and I could see, and I said, Dad, absolutely nothing you did or didn't do caused me to do what I did. You taught me right from wrong. I suffer from a disease, what you know about. It's not your fault. I went the way I went because I thought I was smarter, thought I was slicker, you know all that shit. And I could see a physical weight lifted off this man's shoulders. He came suffering with his belly out to here to apologize to me. And because of this program, because of Narcotics Anonymous, I got to tell that man it was not his fault. He died seven days later. And I thank God that I don't have to carry that burden around having never told that man that it was all me. And that's one of the gifts we're given in this program. Do not leave for tomorrow what could be said today. 
It's not guaranteed to us. I don't know if my mother truly accepted that I was on the road to recovery. She was suffering. They radiated her. She had cancer and her brain was going. She had moments of clarity. But I like to believe that she's looking down and she sees me. I put a mask card. They let me go to that funeral. Like 21 cops. They closed the block. It was fucking ridiculous. They were looking under cars and they said, we know you with the IRA. I said, I read a book about the IRA. What the fuck is the IRA? <laughs> So I put a mask card in her funeral, uh, in the coffin with her, and I said, I want you to rest in peace, knowing that I'm firmly on the path to being the man you always thought I could be. And I really hope that she knows that. And it's only because of this fellowship again that I was able to write those words and mean them. You know, and any doubt she had in her mind was truly justified because I had lied a million times before. And it's only through action, continued, esteemable acts, that we gain back the trust of others. And when they begin to trust us again, I turn that over. It's not on me. I just continue to do what I think is right and the next right thing talking about. So two weeks after I get out, it's Mother's Day. My brother, young brother, 13 months younger, calls me up and he says, hey, you want to go rock climbing? I'm going to be honest with you, I really got no fucking desire to climb no rocks. <laughs> I've been shot three times, stabbed nine times, had my fucking throat cut, just got out of prison, and I don't feel like dying on a fucking rock. <laughs> Life is just getting good. But, you know, we're macho pricks, of course. Hey, rock climbing here, come on, bring it on. So my wife tells him, listen, his insurance didn't kick in yet. You break them, you fix them. <laughs> so we go down to the Sean Gunn Cliffs, right? We used to sit in the yard in the Sean Gunn Prison, and we used to look at these cliffs, because it was New Paltz, where the college is, and we used to hang around there in the 70s. We used to steal a U-Haul truck, buy a keg of beer, drive up to the fucking woods, get drunk, burn the car, and hitchhike back. <laughs> Seemed like a good idea at the time. But the 70s, you guys remember, that was the letter era. I don't understand it. LSD, DMT, SDP, PCP, everything was a letter back then. And we did it all. So I was in the woods expanding my mind. Right? <laughs> Fucking eating tree bark, all kinds of dumb shit. Right? So I used to tell the guys in the prison, yeah, that's the new pause. They said, yeah, 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 we know. Shut the fuck up with them woods around. So I used to look at the cliffs and think about it. So my brother comes. We put on these backpacks, and these are like the most famous rock climbing cliffs on the East Coast. You look them up, the Shongong uh, Cliffs, it's called the, um, something or other. It's like a ridge that goes up. It's a, a, geogra a geogra geological wonder, right? So we're going in the woods, we're hiking, we're going over this shit, we're going back up, down, I'm sweating my ass off. And finally he puts the pack down. I said, I said yeah, that was good, rock climbing. He says, we're just getting started. Straight the fuck up. I'm not fucking kidding. This wall, I got fucking pictures. Come over later and see it, right? So now he's telling me about rock climbing etiquette. Getting one with the rock. Work it out for yourself. Don't ask for help. Follow the chalk marks. Because everybody's got the chalk on their hands so you don't slip, right? So I get about 150 feet up this rock and I'm clinging there like a fucking spider monkey getting ready to die. I'm just hanging on. My, my arms are cramped up. I can't go. I said, fuck the rock climbing etiquette. I said, Rob, which way do I go? Sometimes you need to go back to go forward. Listen, I don't need any philosophical bullshit right now. I need some fucking help, right? So I took a step back to where I got two good feet on the rock, and I was able to shake my arms out and get rid of the cramps. And I look up above me, and there's a fucking buzzard flying above me. It's a fucking vulture. This fucker knows there's a meal coming, right? He said, this is a jerk wolf. I'm going to eat this guy, right? 
So I shake out my arms, and when I look back up, I saw three different chalk marks, three different ways to go. And I remain teachable every day of my life, and this program teaches us that, to try to remain open. And that's just, you know, I used to think if I had three choices, A, B, and C, they all suck, but which one sucks the least because I have to choose, right? I learned right here in this fellowship that I can decide not to choose. I can take a step back, wait for my higher power to show me the way, call a fellow addict who may have some insight into this particular problem, and just take a step back and slow down. And I learned that right here. So I took that step back. I saw the three different ways to go. And I continued to climb, right? So I got to the top and I flopped over on the rock. It was an overcast day. And this is some biblical shit. It's Mother's Day, right? The sky opens up and a shaft of light comes down and hits me on top of the rock. And I looked off to the south and I saw the gun tower over the prison yard where I used to sit. And I told my brother, I said, listen, I'm gonna need a minute up here. And I cried for about a half an hour. These tears are just confirmation that I have not lost my humanity. I cried for all the men I left behind. I cried for the years I lost. But I cried out of sheer gratitude that some addict thought we were worthy enough to come into that prison and save this addict's life and allow me to climb to the top of that rock. This fellowship has taken me all over the world. I spoke in Kathmandu, Nepal, for Christ's sake. I went to the highest Buddhist temple in the world, like 21,000 feet up. There were Sherpas with freaking horses taking us up there. I went to the highest place on earth that we could go, you know, and that's just, this program, if you're new, please, listen to me, listen to me carefully. I used to think when I was younger that we made a mistake and you got fingerprinted or whatever and you think all life is closed to me now. I can't do this, I can't do that. If you're sitting in this room here today and you are listening to my voice, there is absolutely nothing you have done up until this point in your life that you cannot overcome if you just keep coming back. Thank you. This show is not affiliated with any specific 12-step program. If you or a loved one is struggling with an addiction, please find a local 12-step meeting. If you believe you may need detox or drug treatment of any kind, please call 833 833- Nine 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 one eight seven seven to speak to a specialist. The show is sponsored by United Recovery Project, a state-of-the-art drug and alcohol rehab facility. You can visit our website at unitedrecoveryproject.com. <laughs>